Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Tech Your Business podcast. It's an early morning episode for Nirov right here. It's 5.30 a.m. where he is. <laughs> Usually, I'm at the other end with my 5 a.m. recordings, but that's so good. Hopefully, we get a great um, conversation out of this. So today on the show, like I said, we'll be talking to Nirov Shets. Nirov is the CEO and founder at Anata Designs. So he'll be telling us a bit about what he does for business owners and would, I, I guess we'll have a wide yeah. and specific discussion at the same time. So welcome to the show, Nirov. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. I appreciate it. You're welcome. So tell us a bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, so um, I'm CEO of Anata, and we're a, a partner uh, to, to large-scaling, fast-growing e-commerce brands, uh, specifically many of those running on Shopify as an enterprise uh, e-commerce platform. And what I mean by partner is we serve as the user experience designers, the developers, the interaction design, the project management, quality assurance, and really build a digital product team for fast-growing brands. And what we've realized is that they don't want just a, another set of freelancers or just another agency who's giving them X amount of hours. They want dedicated help. And they want dedicated help in a way that's not fractionated, that's very transparent, and that can feel like an extension of their team. And that's what we become. So we become partners and we, we really build businesses in, in what we call uh, game-changing partnerships. And the game-changing partnership that we're able to create helps correlate towards the, fast, the nature of the fast-growing brands because they want somebody there with them growing, scaling, and being able to really produce results for them. Hmm. So why did you choose um, Shopify as your platform of choice? Because like, you know, we have a lot of other um, e-commerce platforms people use. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of other e-commerce platforms and Shopify, you know, we, we actually didn't start in the Shopify space. We started in the WordPress space and mm. the WooCommerce space back in 2010. So it's been a while like that when we first started and the kind of was great for small businesses. And then we went into the Magento space from like 2010 to 2012, 2013. And uh, what we, we actually pivoted much earlier than many other uh, companies into Shopify right in 2014. So it was around nine years ago from today that we, mm. we really made a change into Shopify. And the main reason we chose it as a platform is because we saw something trending and it was a very early trend, but we started noticing that brands were starting to just grow at a faster rate being on, on Shopify than they were in any of the other e-commerce platforms. Because we were still working mm. with brands running on Magento. We were still working with brands running on WooCommerce. We were still working with brands even on Spreecommerce and a few of these custom solutions that were out there. But the brands that were on Shopify tended to just scale faster. And what I meant by scale is like they actually grew. Their rate of growth in terms of revenue was faster than anybody else that we had seen. We had started working with Rothy's, uh, a women's footwear brand, in 2016 and from 2016 to i think it was around end of 2018 2019 they went from doing zero dollars to doing 220 million dollars in, in annual wow. revenue and that's the type of fast growth that i'm referring to where it was like first year a couple million second year like 2025 the third year going upwards right underneath 100 and then straight to 200. so that's the level of growth that we see in, in platforms when in businesses when they're actually leveraging Shopify versus leveraging another technology solution. 
Hmm, interesting. That's from zero to hundreds of millions. That's actually really impressive. So why do you think the rate of growth of these businesses implementing Shopify is higher than these other platforms? I think it's because when, when brands are leveraging uh, systems like Shopify, they're kind of doing something that's a little bit different. So like, let, let me explain that a little bit more. Like, uh, overall, Shopify has taken a very Apple-like approach. Um, what I mean by that is that they started removing control from places that most people didn't need it. So if you remember mm-hmm. back like in the olden days of, uh, and this might be dating myself, but kind of <laughs> leveraging Microsoft and, and Microsoft Windows and where they were at and where how Microsoft built their computers from gateway to other computers that were out there, they all took a uh, race of, hey, we're going to put the user in control of everything. So you install your own software, you can install your own drivers, and you do everything that you want. So you have full customizability. And that's what these platforms like WooCommerce, Magento, FreeCommerce offered was like, hey, we will give you full customizability. And Shopify said, we're not giving you full customizability. We're going to actually confine you into these constraints. But what we are going to allow for you is for you to actually pay attention to the things that we believe matter the most, which is the design of the site, the design of the user experience, the ability to manage your storefront in a really strong way, and focus all your uh, efforts into the interface and interactions with the customers and the usability. And I felt like that approach was a very Apple-esque approach. And what I mean by that is, again, Apple took that approach of, hey, we're giving you a really beautiful computer. We're giving you really beautiful software. Use it and don't worry about what's happening on the internals. If you really want to make a change on the internals, we'll kind of teach you how and show you how, but like we're not focusing on that. And so I thought that was really important. Uh, number two, I think that these brands and, and when they're leveraging Shopify, Shopify started to make some really, it's a really adaptable system. And what I mean by that is that the, the engineers and the technologists behind this and the founder, Toby, who created Shopify along with his CEO, Harley and others that they built is a system that's very adaptable and can pivot too. And so when things like uh, web three got launched last year, it's not being talked about as heavily nowadays, as much as AI is being talked about, but yeah. when web three launched Shopify came out and said, Hey, we're adaptable to web three. We're not only accepting digital wallets, but we're starting to allow for NFTs and other things to be implemented. And there was like that type of adoption where something becomes popular and then it gets integrated into the system normally takes big enterprise solutions like Shopify, you know, a year, two years, three years to even adapt because it's too hard to move this big Titanic of a boat. But they've been pivoting and been able to add things. And just recently in the last couple of weeks, they added something called uh, Sidekick, which is their AI solution to help Mm -hmm. storefront owners be able to manage their stores better. And when the, it's basically like a chat bot where you can say, hey, uh, like a sidekick, I need help doing this. Or, hey, can you cancel these few orders? And it'll actually go and do those things for you. So that was really cool because it was an adoption of AI in the form of the way that chat GPT works, which is the most common one that everybody knows of when it comes to artificial intelligence and how it works with, with businesses and individuals. So I thought that that was really cool. I think also Shopify has been... You know, my third big point that I believe that is, is strong is that they've had a closer alignment with marketing and um, with marketing than they have with tech. So mm-hmm. what I when that's a kind of an interesting take on things, but it's like they actually focused a lot of their efforts on how do we integrate with social advertising platforms? How do we integrate with search better? How do we integrate with email platforms better? And when you make that happen, businesses 
all kind of are able to grow from the efforts that they do on their marketing front on, on customer acquisition. And so if you don't integrate tightly with that and you focus so much on making just the technology great and say, hey, you go do the integration with the marketing on your own, that makes it really difficult because not everybody knows all the technology that involves with marketing platforms like Facebook, TikTok, um, Instagram, et cetera, Google search. And in order to do all the tracking pixels and to do all those things that you really combine to make businesses grow, which is leveraging marketing efforts to help bring new leads and new customers to their business, they need help in that space. And I felt like Shopify has always been in a really lockstep with their marketing platforms. And even when iOS 14 came out and there was a lot of trouble in the e-commerce space because people couldn't identify users, Shopify found ways to really be able to integrate stronger with these different platforms to make that possible. And then the last thing I'll say, Peter, and uh, and this is like my last point of why Shopify has been so solid with this is that they just offer a lower operational cost. Um, and and mm -hmm. by lower operational cost, I mean, you spend far less on the, a system like Shopify in terms of running it, managing it, and even the software cost itself than you do on systems like Magento and other places where you're paying for hosting, you're paying for um, all the engineers that have to keep it up. A lot of times you're just paying for maintenance and keeping the site alive. Where in the Shopify world, you're not. You're like, hey, I'm just paying to optimize my experience. I don't, I'm not really paying to maintain my experience. And so the low operational costs have allowed the businesses to put their money on the marketing side versus on the operational side. <laughs> I remember Magento back in the day with so many moving parts, something always breaking and it was a nightmare Every to day. get to, <laughs> to where you want yeah. to. So at the end of the day, these platforms like Shopify, WooCommerce, Magento and the rest, they've enabled a lot of brands cut out the middleman. They've enabled them go um, send, sell their products direct to the consumer. But you've given the example of those brands that have accelerated growth, but there are some that start and they don't go anywhere. So from your experience over the past few years, you say from 2014, why do you think this is so? Yeah, I think it's because the brands that are actually, so the brands, that, the trends that I'm watching from brands like Rothy's that I mentioned earlier, Athletic Greens, which has been a brand that we worked with for mm -hmm. over six years and like the number one green supplement out there and, and kind of health supplement that, that's been, been, been uh, repositioned um, to other brands like Viore to Dollar Shave Club. These are all clients that we've helped and seen grow in, in these platforms. And what I see them doing is that they're just focused very, very strongly on the concept of how do we reach our customers and acquire our customers and how do we create a really unique, beautiful experience for them. And what you see on the terms of trends is that they don't offer a ton of like features. So they're not feature rich and they're not like, and, and they're not feature rich because they can't be, it's they chose not to be. They chose to put their energy into their core brand, uh, the, the brand messaging that they offer. They all, they did it in the form of the design. They all did it in the form of usability and they did it in the form of positioning from a copy perspective, really making sure that what they're offering to their customers <clears throat> is so clear and that they get what, what this brand is about, what the products are about, and how to create this really, really beautiful experience for the consumer as they go through the shopping experience. And I think a lot of other brands who haven't made it, who haven't been able to kind of like really pass that threshold of, you know, a couple hundred thousand to a couple million, which is fine. Small, Not every small business is going to work and not every business is going to catapult. But the trends that we watch is that the people who've had really good time to spend on positioning, their copy, their actual design user experience, 
they're the ones who've been able to work with their marketing, meaning what their marketing costs and what they're doing on their marketing fronts to be able to couple those together to make things convert. And they've been able to keep customer acquisition costs pretty low and been able to continue spending, spending, spending on marketing so that they can grow to that stage because they're not losing money in that process. They're actually either making money or breaking even, and that's allowed them to grow and scale from there. Mm. So basically, they've been able to spend more of their resources and time on marketing and related um, aspects yeah. compared to, like you said, tech, which Shopify has abstracted away from them. So Yeah, exactly. And, and what you were saying <laughs> earlier, was just like, you know, the Magento days, you were just kind of like a lot of times a CEO would get pulled in and be like, hey, my checkout is down. Hey, my system's broken. <laughs> you can't be a CEO of a really great brand if half the day you're just trying to fix your checkout or trying to fix why your site's not working. And, and we've all been around that where it's just like, I've been in the agency space for a long time and you don't know how many calls I would get. And you're like, hey, our systems are down. I'm like, what did I do? What did I break? And it wasn't me. It was the system itself was just faulty in so many ways. Yeah. Mm, interesting. So you talked about uh, market, we, we are still on marketing. So for a new direct-to-consumer brand, you've talked about them working on their positioning with copy and um, things like that, working on the, use, the user experience, um, minimizing the features and things like that. So with that, what? For, for a new direct-to-consumer brand maybe launching today, what's the most important thing you say they should do to give them the highest chance of success? Yeah, such a great question, Peter. And, and I think that every B2C brand that's launching today needs to hear this, which is focus on your brand positioning, focus on your copy, and keep a singular message as much as possible. Mm. Because if you don't do those things, when uh, you bring a customer to your site, you bring a customer to say, hey, we are new, we're out there, come listen to us. You can't do it with a very uh, confusing narrative or a narrative that doesn't tell a compelling story. So the story matters and how you tell that story through your copy, through your design, and how you keep it singular is going to be very, very difficult for you because you're in a very competitive landscape nowadays in D2C. There's so many ads, so many different things that show up that if you don't do these things really well, you will lose the customer's attention. And along with that, there's one more thing I would say is speed. Make sure the site speed is fast because what the experience on their apps are like on Instagram and things is things are fast. You click, move, slide, everything works really quick. And as soon as they click your ad, if you don't show up like this, the experience feels jarring because they're like, wait, I was just clicking through and you know, we all scroll, how we scroll, we just, we're going really fast and we're clicking through and we don't really like read everything. We don't pay attention. We're just kind of moving. And if that moving experience feels jarring and it takes a while to load, the, the brain just goes, this doesn't feel right. And then you just X out of that ad and you keep moving forward. And that's the challenge. It's like, if you're really trying to get someone's attention through these forms of advertising, you have to feel like the experience feels common. One another example of that is like, when brands were launching an Amazon offer two days shipping and you were offering ground shipping that took 10 days, that became really difficult because the standard was already set. Hey, two days, three days from shop, uh, from Amazon, this is how quickly it can get to you. And then if you're offering 10 days, nobody's going to buy from you. It's just not going to happen. And so you have to meet the expectations of where the user is at or the customer, where your customers are at. And if you don't do those little things right, you actually lose out on the business. And so a lot of times these brands will pay attention to, but well, what about the future? 
well, you're just launching. You're just getting things out there. Don't worry about the future right now. Worry about how do you acquire customers today and doing it really, really well. That tells such a compelling story that the person says, let me try this. Let me, let me give it a go. Interesting. So what do you see as the future of DTC? Because, okay, you've been in this for almost 10 years now, more than 10 years, actually. Yeah, 15 years as, as, as 15. of this year. <laughs> exactly. So, so you've, yeah. seen, you've seen it from the beginning. You've seen it grow. You've seen everything happen to it. So what do you see as the future of this direct-to-consumer marketing? So I, I see a lot still kind of on the horizon. Um, I think that there is a lot more work being done on the direct-to-consumer brands. As these brands get larger, what I'm seeing is that there's still so much opportunity to personalize and segment your customers in a way that they can feel unique experiences. So nowadays, um, personalization has been talked about for a little while in this industry, but with the help of artificial intelligence and the help of, of other tools that have been really created out of there, you can start to like tier your customers or, or group your customers into segments and create unique experiences for them. Whether it's being able to say, hey, I'm giving you a certain level of discount for your loyalty that you've been providing to me, or to be able to create unique experiences in terms of physical experiences in store with them knowing that, they, hey, this customer has come in store, they're a really loyal customer, they're a tier one or tier two customer, let's give them a free gift with their purchase, let's give them a little bit of extra love. There's all these kind of things that you can create to make the experience for the consumer feel like they're a unique individual. And I think Web3 was starting to move in that direction with the concept of like NFTs, but it's still there even without Web3 support of how do you focus on loyalty and around customer retention. And I think there's a lot of work. A lot of work has been done on the acquisition side for a while, but I think now things are moving into the retention side of the world, which is like, hey, now that we've acquired a customer, what can we do to really make them feel great? But we can also make more money from these consumers too, because they're, they want more from us. And if we can deliver a really great value to them, they'll continue to purchase. And we've seen that as human behavior has evolved and kind of even different Gen Y, Gen Z, uh, uh, Gen X uh, audiences are out there. We've seen that they have they have brand affinity and brand loyalty, uh, especially when you build really great consumer experiences for them that make them feel special and that make them feel like, wow, I feel valued here. And so, the more you can do on the loyalty front is where I think there's a lot of endeavors, and you can do that with both personalization and segmentation. I, I bring both of those terms up because. You don't start normally with personalization. You start a little bit more with segmentation to say, hey, let me do something unique for these group of customers. Because it's like if you have tens of thousands of customers, it's hard to personalize to every individual. Say, hey, Nero, like this is specifically for you. There's not normally somebody on the other side to be able to do that. But yeah. you can segment and say, hey, I'm part of this group and let me do this for them. And then you can get down to personalization. But you can do simple things with personalization too, where you just like when I'm coming back to the site, say my name and put my name on there because you know who I am. But also when I'm in store, maybe you can actually say, hey, we've seen like you, you've been a really great customer of ours. We'd love to show you around, show you some of the new stuff that we have. Like what can I do to help you, et cetera. All, all kind of unique things that are happening in the D2C space. So I think that that's one big, big component of it. I still think that there's a lot to be, there's a lot of new brands still that can come out. D2C isn't completely saturated yet. And so there's been a lot of like the growth of D2C has been really strong. But there's still a lot of new brands, both in food and beverage coming out, in clothing and apparel, um, in the in the beauty space, 
Um, there's so many new D2C brands out there uh, overall. And I think that the focus, a lot of brands have moved away from D2C because of fear of advertising and the cost of advertising. But I think that's a fraught move because the wholesale move that people are trying to go in store is a really, really low margin endeavor. And mm. it's that there was a reason why brands were D2C in the first place. And I think that you can be omni-channel, but starting up D2C can allow you to at least have some margins to work with. Hmm. You mentioned the cost of advertising, and I believe that's one of the biggest issues a lot of e-commerce business owners have, because you end up spending much more than the value of the sale to acquire to acquire a sale. So, yeah. with your experience, what 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 are some ways that um, entrepreneurs in this field can be cash flow positive, yeah, generate positive ROI on their advertising. Yeah. And, and this is a question that's been dogging a lot of brands since the kind of launch of iOS 14, because at that time, CAC's overall customer acquisition costs were pretty low, but now they've become mm. significantly higher. And so it's really hard to break through and you have such large customer acquisition costs, especially if your average order value or how much someone buys from you is either exactly how much you paid to acquire them or, you know, just around that with the cost of the product and everything being mixed in. So there's two things I would suggest to focus on when it comes to how to bring customer acquisition costs down. And there, and I've seen it happen and I've actually been seeing it happen over, more specifically over this last six months to one year. Mm-hmm. One of them is being, we're focusing on ad creative, not just the way that you buy media. Buying media is one thing. The second thing is how well can you come up with different ad creative? Um, When brands focus on ad creative from a place of, hey, we want it to match our existing brand to the T and it has to be on brand messaging. So it has to fit our positioning and our story perfectly on the ad unit itself. What's happening is that they're not testing enough when it comes to the brand creative. So instead of uh, a, a lot of brands, there's two places to test. There's places to test on the ad creative and there's places to test on the website. I would mm-hmm. lean more on testing more of the ad creative because that's where you're getting more visitor count and uh, and more people to access uh, because it's more of the front of the funnel. And when you do that and you create and generate more ads, what you can start doing is start noticing trends of what is working on the hook and what's working on the copy and what's helping on the call to action. Normally in any ads, there's kind of your hook your body copy, and then your call to action. And a lot of people are now starting to leverage videos. So how can you really be able to generate the right creative? And in order to generate the right creative means generating a lot of creative, meaning starting to iterate and test with more creative out there. And the more you can do that, the more you can optimize your ads to find the right audiences. And that we've been seeing work, you know, don't just create one or two ads, create a lot more. And I think that that can really help bring acquisition costs down. Second thing I would focus on is landing pages. So instead of, uh, if you remember earlier, I was talking a little bit about like creating a singular message. Well, when somebody comes to your site and uh, you show them a breadth of everything that you do, hey, here's all my products and everything I have to offer, you're confusing the hell out of that person because you're like, hey, I clicked on this ad because this ad said something and now you're showing me everything. What do I do? And what happens? Most people abandon. They're like, I don't have time for this and they just cross this off. So what you have to focus on is like, what was the ad saying and how do we go into like transition into the story that we want to tell them? And how is that story really compelling by showing either 
one, two, maybe three products at the most, but like really, can you bring it down to one entrance product? What is your best seller? What is the thing that can convince that person, hey, I want to try this brand out? Because once they try it out, then they'll go explore everything else. If they like one of the products that you have or even purchase one of the things you have, then they'll say, hey, I want to know what else you have to offer. But if you don't give them that chance because you've already confused them by showing them everything, that's what is becomes the most challenging aspect of it. So when, when I say that, focus on actually building and designing really good landing pages, whether the landing mm -hmm. page is a unique page or the landing page is your homepage or the landing page is your product detail page. Make sure that that one is so uh, optimized for, meaning you've created various different versions. You've worked on the copy, you've worked on the hook, you've worked on the product imagery, et cetera, to make sure that that kind of user is feeling most convinced. If you had to put, think about poker, if you had to put go all in on something, where would you go all in on? And like, how could you make that landing page be that page where you're just like, I put all my efforts behind this. And I've tested a bunch of different versions. And this is what I think can work for most of the audience that's coming in. That's what's really going to help move the needle. Mm. So you've mentioned a lot of things. You've mentioned them um, creating more ads and um, focused landing pages for each ad. And um, a couple of things you mentioned previously, too. So yeah. you also mentioned AI, um, implementing AI. So what are some specific use cases of AI in this um, industry that can help the entrepreneurs there do more with the same resources yeah. they have? So it's still early on in the AI days. And I'm going to say that I'm going to caveat anything I'm saying by saying that it's still pretty, with, the, with it being very early on, these are only the things I'm seeing as of now uh, in, in late 2023. And so the things that I'm seeing right now is a couple of the easy ones to tackle. Uh, Shopify's use uh, building and, and the thing that I mentioned called Sidekick is a really good AI tool now that helps mm -hmm. store owners be able to leverage and manage their storefronts and be able to do things there and it'll reduce operational costs because simply you'll be able to solve a lot more things by the usage of that than having to maybe hire somebody or to like the hours that it might take somebody to get something done. So that's one thing. Second, uh, creative. So we talked about like the ad creative, landing page creative, other creative that you might be using. There's a lot more tools out there to now turn user-generated content into videos. There's AI tools out there to help you generate more images. Um, there's AI tools out there to help you with videos and kind of your editing of your videos and creation of some of the videos. So, and, and there's a lot of AI tools around copywriting. That's not to say it's going to replace a human entirely, but you can leverage those things where you might have to have multiple people editing your files, editing your images, uh, being able to kind of find the exact perfect copy. You can be able to use these kind of creative tools to kind of start doing things a little bit more on your own and saving costs there. So I think that AI has usages there. The other point that I see is that AI is being leveraged in a lot of chatbots. So when you're on storefronts, you see like a like little customer service tool out there and you'll start asking it questions. And sometimes you're training what brands I'm seeing brands. So is they're training these chatbots to become smart. And so that doesn't require as many customer service agents to respond to. And then only at a time where someone's not getting the answers that they need, do they actually go to an actual support agent. Mm -hmm. But what that's allowed people to do is at least find answers to really simple questions, but not just simpler questions, some even more complex questions, because it is a chat based kind of uh, setup similar to chat GPT, where it's smart enough to kind of answer questions in a, uh, based upon what you're really looking for. So I think chatbots can become really useful for, for AI tools, uh, specifically in the space of D2C brands and, and e-commerce overall. Mm. 
Nice. So um, we've talked about businesses that start and they grow really fast. We've talked about the ones that really don't get any traction at all. Then there are some that start, they grow, and at a point the growth plateaus. Yeah. So why do you think this happens? So that's such a such a great question because I've been I've seen a lot of these sides of like the ones that start and don't make it too far, the ones that start and catapult and get stuck, like you're saying, and the ones yeah. that are able to get through those plateaus. And the biggest things that I see of why they tend to plateau and can't get out of that plateau is because they two things. Um, their management doesn't change uh, in terms of like who mm-hmm. are the people that got them there might not be the people that can take them forward. And, and let me start on that point, because a lot of times brands think that, hey, because we got from zero to $5 million or zero to $10 million, like we can do anything. Because when you can do that, it's really hard. The first, first 1 million is probably the hardest money that you're ever going to make. Yeah. Then from one to five and five to 10 is also hard. But you feel like on top of the world, when you can get to those stages, you're like, I can do anything. Like, well, I don't need anybody else. But what challenge happens there is that this limited thinking, this you have a ceiling of your thoughts of what ideas and things could work. And you also become a little bit, um, you know, uh, uh, reckless on in the sense of what you're willing to do. And, and, and you start spending money in the wrong places uh, versus in the places that make the most sense to develop and invest in. And so what I've seen with the brands that plateau is that they're uh, under investing in a lot of different marketing opportunities and product mm-hmm. side of things to help grow the business to see it for hey this is what other fifty million dollar plus brands or this is what another hundred million dollar plus brand does and they don't hire the people that have taken brands from ten million to fifty million they say hey I'm going to use the same team and the same team isn't they just don't have one the skill set to do it but they also don't have sometimes the ideas that help move them to that space and the willingness and the risk to take to do it. So that has to have a little bit of that risk tolerance. So I think people make a big difference on why that doesn't happen. I think second, the the brands sometimes get tied to feeling like they need to go spread themselves out in five different ways versus focusing on something more singular. So to give you an example of this, um, a lot of brands in the US, uh, which is a lot of the brands that we represent, they all kind of like say, hey, we want to go international. We want to go tackle this new group of audience and we want to do these other things. And I love the concept of going international because I think brands should go international, uh, especially as they're growing and moving forward. But if you do that too early on, you're forgetting that you have a lot more market to still address within the U.S. Because if brands, there's so many brands here in the U.S. that are doing upwards of half a million dollars, sorry, half a billion dollars to a billion dollars in just U.S. sales alone. And so there's a large market size for D2C brands to be able to access. And so instead of before going to spread yourself too thin within too many different markets or too many different places, how can you take over more market share in the current market that you're in? And if you can start doing that, you'll see start seeing a lot more opportunities than when you spread yourself too thin. Once you start spreading yourself too thin, you start losing this kind of opportunity within your current market of saying, hey, now that I've acquired this amount of customers, how do I move to the next? So I'll give you one example of, of, of a brand that we saw stuck, but then really move forward. And it was it was done by uh, the COO of the company. Uh, his name was Adam Trouncer of Athletic Greens. I really look up to him and he's a, he's a really smart individual and he was their past CEO, COO of the, of the company. And one of the things he came up with early on is he said, hey, 
Athletic Greens is a is very well known in the health community, the specifically like the very wellness community driven people. But if you're not in that space, nobody really thinks about drinking green powders. So like, what, where do we go from here? So they were international and they were that, but they weren't able to pass the ceiling. They kept hitting this, you know, strong ceiling. At that time, they might've been, you know, I, I forget the numbers, but they might've been around 10 to $20 million, but they weren't yeah. surpassing that. And what they did was they actually had to change their brand messaging to say, hey, we're not just a, for the wellness community. We can be for everybody, but in order for us to be for everybody, we need to focus on the people that most people, other people listen to. So while part of their names was Athletic Greens, they weren't actually ever talking about athletes. Their most biggest influencer was Tim Ferriss, who was definitely not an athlete. Good guy, great podcast, everything else, but he's not an athlete. So then they started going to different athletes out there and they became the promoters of the brand and talking about how they use it in their sport to become the best at what they did. So they had Bryce Harper from the Phillies and they had all tons of other athletes and really, really smart individuals, but like, you know, people who weren't just looking purely at wellness. And they started showing that green powders can help influence their uh, performance and what they can do. And when they went upstream like that, they found a new persona of individuals who would never have used green powders start using green powders. And that is what catapulted them. That's what got them out of that plateau that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you have to be innovative in that way to say, hey, if I'm stuck in this one niche, which is fine, you're, you got yourself to where you are because you focus on that niche. Now, how do you break out of that niche by being able to maybe reposition yourself or rebrand yourself? Because they did, they rebranded re themselves from Athletic Greens to what's now AG1 because it's just easier mm -hmm. to pronounce and people, that's how they, they see it. And what, what else can you do to like re redesign and create your unique experiences to kind of reinvent those things for that newer audience? Because if it wasn't working as it currently is, you have to try a bunch of new things out, but that doesn't mean you have to generate new products. So in cases where you think, hey, I need to create more and more products, that might not be true. What you might need to do is just make your, your product more palatable to an audience that previously didn't find it palatable. Hmm. Interesting. So now back to your business and yourself and other designs. When you look at uh, managing your communications, your routine, your tasks and um, everything. What's your favorite favorite piece of technology for doing that? Yeah, um, right now, like we I, I stick to like the Google suite, which I'm, I'm very used to, but I, like Slack becomes really useful. And for managing normal tasks, I actually just go with the simple Asana uh, and Notion. Those are the two technologies mm. that we're using heavily as a company. We're a, a little bit bigger size company. We're, we're slightly north of a, a few, like a, a slightly north of a hundred people. So we're now using Jira as well for our client management side of things. Don't suggest that for everybody, but when you get to a certain size, Jira becomes really, really useful uh, as a sure. as a large scale project management tool. Yeah, but the ones I'm liking right now is is Notion and uh, Asana. I think Notion's done a really good job of kind of becoming a really <laughs> great tool for a lot of entrepreneurs and just kind of having a, a suite that becomes really easy to use. Yeah, I've, I've heard so much about Notion whenever I ask this question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so much. All right. So we've um, talked about a lot today, but I'm sure I might have missed something or probably there's something you'd like to share with the listeners that I haven't and um, we haven't talked about. So is there any, so what's that thing you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I, I would love to share with the listeners, you know, as, as you're going through your journey of, of building your businesses and leveraging tech, really try to start looking at tech from a perspective of 
what's going to enable you to move forward. Don't pay attention so much as to what tech is going to be the thing that you need when you become a billion dollars in value. Pay more attention to what tech enables you to do now and today. And if you feel like you need to have control over everything, take a pause. <laughs> Just take a little bit of a breath and say, do I really need it that much control? Because 95% of the times you don't need as much control as you think you do. And when you give up that control, you also pay a lot less money for the tools and systems that you use. So going back to the instance of like something like Shopify, you might not have as much control over everything and anything, but what it allows you to do makes it so simpler. It makes your costs go down significantly, but you let you focus on the things that matter the most. And when you're running a business and you're starting a business and you're growing it, what you're looking for isn't technology for the sake of technology. You're looking for technology for the sake of enablement and what it can do for your team and yourself. And that's how I would look at technology from, from a place. There was, there was a time where you thought there was a time where brands and specifically brands that are in the e-commerce space that felt like we need technology, we need to own the technology because that's going to be our IP. And that's just not true. It's not going to be your IP. Your IP is going to be your product that you make, the what, how you're creating that product, what it, what that is. Technology is not going to be the place where you somehow shine, but where you will think one thing that you do want to own. And I will say this consistently over and over will be data, own your data, own what like that is. And that doesn't mean that what Shopify has, you can't own that is your data. And that's what you have access to, but own that because then you can find ways to make sense of what that data is telling you. And then there's a lot of different systems and companies that are doing a really great job of analyzing your entire data set and saying, Hey, these are the trends and these are the things we're, we're finding. So look for tech from a place of enablement and own your own data. Those are the two things I would say as any business could do. And third, focus on the things that matter the most, focus on the things that are actually going to help you grow your company, which is marketing sales, do a phenomenal job at selling. Don't think you can get by by like mediocre sales, bring some people on that know sales and teach and have them teach you how do you sell this product in the best way possible? Because I, for close to 10 years, didn't sell myself properly. And luckily we had really great uh, retention efforts and we had really great referrals, which is an awesome thing to have as a business. But at the same time, you can't grow without knowing how to sell and how to talk the talk. And a lot of times people are like, I don't need sales. Like that's, that's for like the 1970s Mad Men style. And it's like, you need sales. <laughs> you, you need somebody who can talk the talk and who can actually help you sell your product to your customers. And, and that doesn't mean individual salesmen. It just means that how you go about selling online. Hmm. Interesting. So for listeners um, who would like to learn more from you, you've had 15 years of experience and I'm sure you have a lot to share. Listeners who would like to work with you or anything else, how can they reach you or Anata Designs? Yeah, so they can reach us directly through our website, anata.io. That's A-N-A-T-T-A dot I-O. And you can reach me directly from my personal name on LinkedIn. And I'll make sure to send uh, some, some links to you, Peter, so you can have, add them to the show notes and kind of have, have them available. Definitely. So those links will be in the show notes so they can easily um, get across to you. So thank you very much for coming with coming on the Tech Your Business show this early. I guess it's like 6.17 there now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, appreciate you having me, and uh, and uh, it's a great start to the morning, and and really appreciate this conversation. It was it was a lot of fun. True. All right. Yeah. And thank you so much for sharing everything with us, and for the listeners, thank you for being with us on this episode of the Tech Your Business Show. So till next week or the next episode of the Tech Your Business Show, don't forget to keep taking your business, and bye for now. All right. <laughs> Awesome. How'd, 